0: So you had this dream of starting a brand new business. You got going, you got in the weeds, and you pulled up by your bootstraps to solve all the problems and things that were going on, and you started to have a successful small business. At some point, you start thinking like, well, can I scale this up? Can I really take this idea and make it a multi-million dollar kind of business? And for me and our business, we've grown to over a $200 million company. And I know the scars and the pains of scaling to that kind of level. One of the key things that I struggled with substantially was that I didn't know that if you just double the staff, you're not going to double production. In fact, your productivity goes down unless you solve all the systems and infrastructure. You need to really make that a reality. And that's why I'm so excited to have my guest today, Di Manuel, who is a former partner and COO of a multi-million dollar retail company, and he's on a mission to positively impact one million role models around the globe to lead a more successful life. Di, thank you so much for being here today. Mike, thank you, man. It's an absolute honor. Uh,
1: excited to be here, plus talking about the growing pains of business and... uh I don't know. You just can't get into business and not expect to have those. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) So so true. true.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, let's dive into that. Like you built up a successful multi-million dollar company. What lessons did you learn in scaling up that business? Well, you know, the interesting thing, it's
1: it's definitely a team effort. You know, we had Mm. really great people. And and the company's still in existence, still moving forward. I know it's struggled a little bit since I left, uh, only because the, the industry's changed a bit. We were in the specialty fitness equipment industry and mm. predominantly omni-channel. So e-commerce, we had eight retail locations, but we also did a lot of B2B type solutions and manufacturing, you know, omni-channel. We were doing it all. Um, but at times, you know, also trying to do it all, we know, as you said earlier, productivity can go down. And as well as your focus sometimes becomes distracted. So you know there was periods where we got really excited we'd open a couple new storefronts but i think we rushed it at times and that was one of the biggest lessons we had to learn because you know retail is like putting on the boxing gloves every day and stepping in the ring <laughs> and it's, it's, i love it i love connecting with people every day was different but on the same note being in specialty retail it's not like we're selling little widgets i mean we're, we're selling weights and dumbbells so logistically speaking a lot of the equipment needs to be set up by professionals needs To be serviced by professionals, but it's also just heavy and bulky stuff. So, we needed lots of warehouse space as well to be able to sell products on demand. And so, there's a lot of logistical challenges that come with that. I mean, there's times where I, I would look at my friends selling digital solutions, digital products, you know, SaaS solutions. I'm like, what a nice business model, <laughs> you know? And uh, and that's probably also why I segued to doing more things online today when I eventually left the next business. But you know, some of the biggest groin pains that we experienced were definitely around the personnel and the operations piece, you know,
0: just really trying to create that harmony between the two. You mentioned there that you expanded into a few different retail places too quickly and had to kind of pull back or maybe struggle through that a little bit. I've lived that journey as well, but what do you think caused it? Uh, Because it's not necessarily just too quickly. There's something underlying that that didn't quite work. What was that for you? Well, you know, the the why to do it at the time
1: was, you know, we were having best year after best year. Profitability was going up. Our, our gross margin was increasing. Also, just our brand awareness was improving. We, we really were the main brand in Western Canada because we had two provinces covered, the equivalent of a couple of states, you know? And so we had Alberta and British Columbia with a really strong footprint because we originated in BC, in Vancouver proper. Uh, so we had a really strong West Coast presence. And so I guess, you know, in a way, we kind of become overconfident with that brand value without really understanding that as we start to expand, and this is the logistical challenge, especially in Canada, for those that have been to Canada, you know, small population density, big geographical region. <laughs> and, wow. and we don't have the volume like you do in the States. Like, just look at California. Population of California is like the same as Canada. And it, so the numbers game, and when it comes to logistics of just receiving product, shipping product, and then setting up new storefronts, you know, it, it's a big investment to do so. And our previous model was sort of the Home Depot model. And from a standpoint, we had a very ugly armpit of the world locations, you know, these big ugly warehouses that were off the beaten track because it was dirt cheap rent. And we figured we'll take the extra money we save on the rent and that overhead Let's just throw it all into marketing so we can drive traffic to our store mm. and it worked until it okay. stopped working <laughs> oh no and then you're stuck with these big leases big warehouse spaces and and the retail stores aren't selling enough volume to support the additional space the additional inventory we were carrying which put us into sometimes a cash flow crunch. you know yeah. because our thing that really allowed us to to have a cutting edge over our competitors was we were often cash business, you know, and what I mean by that is we would often negotiate terms with suppliers and often say, Hey, if we don't do terms, we pay for this upfront, what kind of deal can you give us? We'll buy a truckload at a time, you know, like, and it allowed us to shave extra points off, which again, we would reinvest sometimes into infrastructure, sometimes into marketing, sometimes just into more profit, you know? Um, but again, there was challenges with that. And it often just related to, to, Inventory management, if I'm perfectly transparent, you know, it was sometimes thinking, oh, this is a great buy. We love this product as the staff. Oh, the customers don't like it. <laughs> you know, so it's like, are stuck with half a truckload of product. And it's like I said, it's not small stuff. You know, you're, you're stuck with this stuff and then you have to discount. Anyways, uh, longish sort of it, uh, sometimes we made bad buys. I, I owning it, I made bad buys <laughs> and then trying to force that down our salespeople's throats to clear it. Uh, you know,
0: it created challenges at times for sure. So, is the inventory who actually, hit. yeah, you had to pick the products in advance, which makes sense for me to Correct. purchase them, have them available and delivered. And then, if you picked that wrong, you wrote them off <laughs> pretty much. You got to write it down,
1: you know, come the year end if we're still stuck on inventory. And if you know, we're trying to do with most big ticket items, you know, we, we would like to do a quarterly turn, you know, so at least every three months where we're seeing that inventory turn and refresh. Um, but at times, you know, if it was getting on to six, nine, I mean, in some cases, 12 months, bad buy, really bad buy. And then, so at that point, yeah, we'd break it down and we'd often incentivize our staff to, 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 perf- you know, preferentially show that as a, an option for people that are looking for a good deal. Uh, and then we would commission our guys extra on those, you know, double what they would make on that versus other products. So we're, again, we're trying to make it a win, win, win for everyone. Uh, but still at the end of the day, if people just aren't into the product, yeah, you are kind of stuck with it, you know? And, and I remember at times I did this deal on shoes. We thought, okay, this is a great idea. You know, we got all these people coming in to buy equipment. Why don't we get into the apparel business? Oh, huh. bad idea. You know, we went out of our lane. And I was I did this crazy deal with this supplier and I, I loved their shoes so much. You know, we were selling a lot of CrossFit-based equipment and, you know, CrossFit was taking off back around the 2008, 2009 through 2013. It was a five-year run there where we were doing tons of volume in the CrossFit space. So I thought, hey, let's ride that wave. We'll bring in CrossFit-type shoes, et cetera. Bad buy. Bad buy. That's Especially when you start looking at
0: sizes and installers. Uh, We shouldn't have gone there. That was a big... What made that a tough buy? Was it the fact you've had all these variations that you'd have to have in stock? Yeah, I mean, exactly.
1: Just inventory-wise, it's also you need a lot more showroom space to be able to display the product. You got to warehouse a lot of the popular sizes. And because we didn't have the previous sell-through and really the history on the What's going to sell and what's more popular? We had to rely on other people to sort of try to pull that information. But again, is that information solid? Is it good? Is it relevant to our market and our customer base? It, it was a bit of a learning curve, and and slow, sure enough, you know, about 18, uh, 18 months, almost twenty months later, we we just basically wrote off all the inventory and just tried to clear it. But it took us a good two years to clear that inventory. So it was just a that was one of the biggest mistakes. And and I know that's a big challenge in retail, especially when you're selling higher ticket, big, bulky stuff. Uh, so yeah, it was, again, going banks.
0: <laughs> you know, one of the big challenges is just scale, even as you're starting a business is there's so many different like paths you can go down as you're talking about different kinds of products that you can purchase. Yeah. You don't necessarily know in advance which one of those paths are going to work and which ones aren't going to work. Correct. Right. Have you learned any techniques or looking back in your history, have you found any ways to try to. Proactively, not go down the right paths and try to more often go down the the right ones.
1: Yeah, I guess you know we, my partner and I, we we would attend often and we'd bring some of our key guys to some of the bigger industry trade shows. And so in the states, there was usually two a year that that were big ones, and then we'd go to the ones occasionally, uh, like Taipei in Taiwan. A lot of our manufacturers were Taiwan based, and so we would go there every couple of years, or or even just to go and source new products or to find new manufacturers or you know, to keep those relationships with certain manufacturers in a good position.
0: Hey, it's Mike. Let's beat the banks at their own game. Traditional banks don't have great interest rates, but they charge businesses like Norhart higher rates, and they keep all the profits. Why don't we cut out the middleman and connect directly, thus leaving more for both of us? invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates. To learn more, visit Norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and get more than you ever could at a bank. This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. And we would find that, you know, by bringing
1: some of our salespeople, our top performers, they had a better finger on the pulse of what was going on on the day-to-day as far as the customer flowing to the store, what they were asking for, what they were liking, but also what were they wanting? And I I feel a little bit remiss because at times when I'm doing the purchasing, I may have not been as in tune with that. And I didn't rely. I allowed my ego to get in the way, to be quite frank, thinking, oh, I know more mm. than you guys, you know, da 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 da, da. And, and just made buys without really validating that with the team and with the customer base. So, you know, big mistakes there because it's a cash flow crunch, right? That you create for yourselves, especially the way that we were operating our business. So yeah, those are some of the things. But then there was also good practices when we were in tune, especially with social media, seeing what's going on, what's trending, what are people talking about? What are some of the new fads coming out and we tried to stay away from that but sometimes there was fads that had had legs you know like the bosu balls remember when those first came out i mean at a heyday there i think we were selling josh maybe almost a full truckload a month of those you know like literally we we're a thousand units a month out of like eight retail stores it was crazy how much volume we were doing, and that was just one skew but it got hot it started to trend everybody wanted one and Fortunately, we had the stock so we could supply everybody, you know, and uh, and that was the advantage of having this sort of cash and carry model. But
0: if you don't buy right, yikes, you 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 feel the pain, you know, the crunch. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you mentioned how that you've saved money, I think, in your leases mm-hmm. and then you use that money to yep. market. And it worked really well until it did not <laughs> yep. What what's what happened there? How did you work through that? Well, OK, so we had
1: a competitor. That was a national chain. And this is a little bit of a backstory, and I'll be very brief with it. But uh, my business partner was 20 years my senior. He was a joint venture partner with this national chain. So actually, when they started expanding across Canada, they looked at little independents in each province saying, hey, listen, we're going to come and compete, or you can join us. What would you rather do? And So a lot of them would roll in their inventory, change their storefronts to adopt this new model. And it worked really well. They they expanded across Canada very quickly because of that buying out a lot of these guys that were aging out of the industry, or quite frankly, just wanted out. And um, this national chain, we eventually separated from them because we realized, you know, this just this isn't a fit culturally, uh, but also morally. There was just a, a conflict of interest in, in many different ways. I won't get into it, but because we were part of this big national chain, we didn't really have full control over how we wanted to operate, and so we became independents. And when we became independent, we started to diversify from these large brick and mortar warehouse type locations to more specialty retail stores. Because we had a couple that did extremely well. Like we had a little location in an area in Vancouver called Kitsilano, which is interesting. It's an older part of Vancouver, uh, very trendy, very hip. Um, we got a really small storefront there. And that little storefront did a couple million dollars a year. It was crazy the kind of volume we did. There's this little like shoebox. And we were like, okay, this is good. Maybe we can do a few more of these. And so we started to expand in some of the other smaller uh, markets around the Vancouver region. And we realized that we probably should have done a bit better market research as well as negotiate on some of those retail leases. Because all of a sudden we were going into strip malls and, and higher traffic locations thinking, oh, geez, this will be great. We'll have more traffic. I bet you we'll do more revenue it didn't. <laughs> so really? uh, one store in particular, like we, we, we signed a three-year lease with an option to renew for another, I think two or three. And we often would negotiate like really aggressively, you know, so like leasehold improvements, all that stuff. And we would, you know, pay the first six months and the last six months cash to get some really good lease. And also, so we didn't have to sign any corporate guarantees and all that other usual stuff. Um, and also just a little side note, each of our retail stores were independent operating unit. That oh, all products were were actually owned by the the head company, that our parent company, but they would then be on uh, allocated sort of all, um, to each of those. It was just a much clearer way, especially from an accounting standpoint. Being private enterprise, uh, it made sense. Our account was really good. Our CFO was really good. Uh, but this one store, oh my gosh, man! Like Mike, it was. We we thought this would be a home run because a lot of the postal codes that we were selling out of the warehouse locations were going into that trade market. So we're like, this is going to be a home run. We'll actually have a footprint here. Store was our worst performing store. And it just didn't matter how much we marketed it. It was just garbage. (laughs) It's just awful. Like we were losing my, if you had more traffic to that store, what do you think that made that difference? Yeah, no, it was a high traffic retail space in a strip mall. And it had a big anchor store there too, a big, big uh, grocery store that was quite the draw. So we are like, you know, there's people coming here every day. I mean, that's a consumable. They're coming all the time. They're going to see our branding. We always had big obnoxious signs, nice color, big posters in the windows, try to have it well-lit store. So it was very inviting for people because honestly, fitness equipment can be intimidating for many of us, especially when we're getting started. So we we're trying to really accommodate those consumers. And we just, it, we realized that that trade market, to be fair, the demographic, they preferred buying from Costco. They preferred buying from big, big retailers were, that weren't specialty fitness, but they're buying certain brand names that you'll see online occasionally, but they're like the Sears of the Worlds, the um listen, we'll just say it's a rung down. But they were very aggressive on their marketing, especially the flyer programs. And, you know, like we have this chain of stores called Canadian Tire up here. And Canadian Tire is a national chain owned by the Frizzani group, and they have very high buying power, but they would buy lower-end products listed at retail, and that'd be like 50% off, right? And now trying to fight that and educate a consumer, it just created more resistance. And so we realized that the conversion and the closing of some of these opportunities, it just, we had a really poor closing rate in those locations and the high ticket stuff never sold. People were wanting the low end, which isn't really our forte. We we didn't want to be low end. We're not trying to compete with the Costco's with these big box franchises, you know, like we're like, we're specialty. We, We know fitness. We know it well, we get people results. Hey, those are not products we would endorse or recommend, but you, you know it's attractive. Someone comes in a flyer. It's fifty percent off. You know it looks like a great treadmill. It's got all the bells and whistles. What do you mean yours? That's twice the price is better. I'm like, well, it is better, but let me show you. You know, if you want to look at some of this equivalent, I got this unit down here for five hundred bucks, which is just as good as the one that you're prepared to buy for a thousand. But even then, that flyer did the sell for them. It's like people buying Bowflexes. You remember Bowflexes? Oh yeah. Yeah. We were one of the first retail stores in Canada to be honored to have the opportunity to buy those and put them on our showroom floors. Because before it was only a, a direct uh, to consumer model, but, uh, and they maintained that in the States. But in Canada, there was a guy that owned the rights to that product line. and was the main distributor. And he eventually opened us up, but we had to promise never to discount the product. I will tell you, that one SKU financed our business for about two years. Like it was insane because of the power of the marketing and the money that that company put in to advertise to the Bowflex, and still, would I buy a Bowflex for myself? No, I wouldn't. There was a product at fifteen hundred dollars that was five hundred dollars less than a Bowflex that, quite frankly, I thought was a much more superior product. It's going to last longer, gives you a better quality workout. We would educate people on this, and still, at the end of the day, they'd be like, "Yeah, that sounds great. I'll take the Bowflex." <laughs> you know, so it, we wouldn't argue with it. We're not here to convince you, but we will educate you, let you make your decision. But the crazy thing is we were making 55, 60 points on that thing at full, full rate. And we couldn't discount it. We weren't allowed to discount it or else we'd lose the product. We could not keep them in stock. Like could not, like it, it was amazing. That was the first time I really realized the power of effective marketing, especially the way BoFlex uh, would market. They always buy remnant ads, right? Like they're buying all these little cheap ads on TV, late night TV, but it's the stuff they'd buy for, you know, 10 cents on the dollar kind of stuff. But they were on there all the time all the time. And uh, it, it was great. We got to piggyback that marketing and we did really well with this. So it was looking for more opportunities like that, but they don't always come by, especially in a specialty fitness, lower volume type of industry.
0: Hey, it's Mike. Passive income is one of this year's hottest buzzwords, but what is it? Well, passive income is when the elite make money and the rest of us sleep. Here at Norhart, we decided to open up this opportunity to everyone by giving you the chance to invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates without doing a thing. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and see what you can build towards. This is an offering by Norhart invest investments can only be made through the Norhart invest website for more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. Yeah. What's really interesting is you're touching on a number of key marketing principles. I mean, one is that you put your store in a place that had high volume of customers, but they weren't the right customer. You know, so for so many of us, as we want to grow our business, one of the key constraints we have is just finding new customers. And we think, okay, let's go put some ads up on Facebook and you start running those ads and then they don't work. And then you shut Facebook down, say Facebook never worked. Well, it turns out there's, there's deeper things going on. And one of the deeper things you really have to be thoughtful of is making sure you market and target the exact right person. What do you think that uh, second store, or the, the first store that had the more profit uh, that was doing better, what made people come to that store? Uh, well, it was convenience for
1: one, because uh, okay. so that part of Vancouver is a very expensive postal code. It's one of the more expensive regions in Canada. It also, University of British Columbia is literally like a 15 minute drive further west down that same strip that, and we were on what's called Fourth Avenue, which is like the trendy shopping district. It is a destination for some people that are out of towners going there. They go there because they're nice restaurants, little boutique shops. And so we wanted to be nestled in in there. And interestingly enough, when we were first there, we were actually on the shady side of the street. When the lease became due, we saw the place across the street was all of a sudden vacant. We were on a month-to-month lease. We were like, let's go see if we can get that location. Ended up being not much more money, but it was on the sunny side of the street a little bit bigger footprint of a store. And, and it was amazing. But that first year, as soon as because we, we went into the higher traffic side of the street, our sales did go up instantly by about 20%. Like instantly, just, just didn't be. like the really, other side of the street. Literally across the street. Like it was, it was weird. Like we, we were, we were rather, I mean, we were pleasantly surprised. Um, and we actually, had, there was a competitor that was two doors down on that side. And we used to watch people going in there all the time. We're like, hey, we're over here. Come over here, you know? Uh, eventually they went out of business and, uh, we played a little part in that, not to, as my competitive nature, but it's just, it's the way that we do it, right? In business, we wanted to own that market, but the demographic there, they would not buy anything less than the certain level. I sort of would equate this when I was training my sales guys. It's like, you know, the person that's driving in right now, his car, the hubcaps on that car, you know, the appliances he has in his home, they're worth way more than the equipment that you're showing them. They're used to buying a certain caliber, a certain quality. And because of that, the the product mix that we had in that store, as well as the people running that store, uh, were some of our more senior salespeople. So the quality of service was quite high, products, big ticket, and we did really well. It was just, it was the right formula and the right market with the right team, And and that's what we were trying to replicate. But, you know, some did, we had a couple that didn't, you know, so
0: uh, you sort of live and learn through that process. Wow. So part of the issue in scaling then was getting to the right location, Correct. getting the right customers in the door. How about from going back to more of the operational side, like getting the right team? What did you do to find the right people to scale effectively? And what did you find was a struggle? Uh, well, Vancouver, it was interesting. There was a period
1: there where it was just, there was a lot of jobs available here. Like the job market was quite rich. As well as we, we were dealing with a lot of millennials. Uh, and there was a bit of a disconnect, you know, with, let's just put it this way. Uh, they had very high expectations for what a job would be, but also the benefits and everything. And, and you know, my business partner, being 20 years my senior, being a baby boomer, uh, his work ethic was different than a millennial's work ethic, okay? And so I, we had to take him out of the hiring equation because if he was in charge of that, it, it just wasn't going to work, okay? It just, there was that disconnect in trying to have relatability. And even though he's a great dude, excellent uh, business owner, and, and just a, a really savvy dude, uh, we just found there was a disconnect with some of this younger workforce that we were trying to recruit and bring in. Because I'd have no shortage of supply of people applying. I would often run into situations where half the people that applied just didn't even show up for a job for the interview. And when we would call them, oh, actually, you know, I decided I don't want to do this. I found another job. It was like, You didn't think to communicate that you couldn't make it to the interview because you got another, it was just amazing, this sort of different mentality when it came to careers and career choices. And so that was one struggle. just the the labor force and the marketplace in Vancouver was just this interesting period for about three years where just, we, we couldn't find enough quality people. So what we started to do was we really started to leverage our own personal networks. We started to look at specialty fitness trainers inviting them to consider this as a career. Because I started as a trainer and then I got into equipment sales and I preferred the lifestyle because I didn't have to work as many hours and I could make more money working less uh, because really being a trainer is hours for dollars, right? And you're you're constantly working based on what your clients can work. And uh, so I liked retail. It was actually a refreshing shift as I was starting to have kids and it was just a better fit. So Trying to tell that story and engage these trainers that this might be a possibility for them was actually quite successful. We we were able to attract some people that were motivated, but they also highly educated when it came to helping people get results. And so that started to to fix the little gap that we had there during that labor sort of, I guess, labor shortage. Really, is what it was, uh, at least for quality people. Um, So that helped, you know. Um, But also, we were really good at rewarding our top performers well. Um, you know, we had a really healthy bonus structure uh and incentive uh pay structure. So the top guys were making six figures plus, you know, and, and for doing something that they love. So the retention of our top people was quite high. Quite high. Yeah. But it was the the newer people and the people that didn't quite have the skill set, you know, we knew that within six months, if we couldn't get them to a certain level, they were gonna leave. Yeah. And so we had to revisit our training programs and some of our operations around training. So that would, you know, going through those growing pains, what I mean by that is like you, you definitely, you notice where the weaknesses are and you notice where, okay, well, that's the weak link. We got to fix that. Let's work on strengthening that. And hopefully that will strengthen the whole unit. And sure enough, it did in some cases. And sometimes you just got to go back to the drawing board and try again.
0: Love it. Yeah. So kind of looking back on your journey of scaling up that business, what would you tell your younger self as sort of a, a couple of key tips uh to navigate that world more effectively? You mean like don't want to reach out? No, I'm sure. <laughs> 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 no,
1: no, not at all. Uh you know, for me, I think it, I know one thing for myself is is I, I do pride myself on my work ethic. I, I am a sponge, but also I was starving for mentorship. And I think for myself, it would have been just trusting the process of receiving mentorship. I In my early time, especially in my early 20s, as I was just getting my feet wet in the industry, because I didn't become a partner in the company until a couple of years later when we separated from that national chain. Being that I was this key guy, I had an opportunity to become a partner with them to open up a new chain of stores. And so it was a great opportunity, perfect timing. Everything worked out well. Uh, but during some of those transitionary periods, I realized that my ego got in the way a lot. Mm-hmm. And so it's just trusting that there's people that know a lot more than I do and to be ready to receive critique, not as a as a judgment, but really as a way to help me become better. And so there was a period of time there that was really challenging. I just, you know, I, I did not take feedback very well. And I, I always felt almost at times as a personal attack. And so that limits your opportunity to grow, to learn, to just have more fun. And, uh, so that would be when I would tell my younger self is like, hey, get over yourself and just trust the other people to support you, to be better. You know, like just, just trust the mentorship process. Like now I'm all about it. As you know about my life's mission is inspire role models. Uh, it's a huge deal, you know, having the right mentor and role model in your life. And,
0: uh, that's, that's what I would like to say to my younger self. I love that, you know. There are really two major ways to learn something. It's either get out there and fail a bunch of times until you find a path to success. And there's validity in that. But whenever you can, if you can learn from someone who's been there before you, you're going to save yourself a tremendous amount of time, energy, and effort, and ultimately be much more successful. Dia, how can our audience uh, learn more about you and what you do? Well, thanks, Mike. I, You know, I'm a pretty
1: social active guy online. I, I'm easy to find because I got a nice unique name, if you know how to spell it. Uh, it had Dai is D-A-I, Welsh name for David. Manuel is a Portuguese last name. I'm Canadian. Don't worry about it if you get my accent there. And uh, But you can connect with me on any of the social platforms, but I am most active on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And it's just my name, Dai Manuel. And, and I just love connecting with people, having great conversations about how people are improving their lives and the lives of people around them. So Hit me up. Let me know. Hey, I heard you and Mike jamming, and here's what I'm working on right now. Here's my mentor in life. You know, like, I don't care. Just reach
0: out to me. Let's have a conversation. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Diane, for being with me today. And this was a true pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Absolute honor
1: to be here today. Appreciate you.